And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the Wednesday. It's the hump day edition. So usually Danny Ratliff joins me today to talk about, you know, some you know topics of, of interest and concern. But, you know, he's out because of his whole, uh, you know, blowing out his patella thing. So yeah. running around on crutches. <laughs> good news, though, is, is that Germany, Italy starting to open back up now. Italy now down to declaring itself a coronavirus safe zone. So really, yeah. yeah. So Germany's their unemployment rate is improving now. They're getting back on track. At this time, of course, we've also got the Delta variant that's now popping up. It's uh, really impacting the UK. It's actually starting to gain a little bit of ground here in the U.S. About seventeen hundred and fifty cases ish. Uh, right now, the new Delta variant of the coronavirus. Uh, this is just kind of this ongoing situation, and this is something if you remember back in. I would say probably August, September of, of 2020 here on the show when we were first talk, when Donald Trump at that time was talking about, you know, fast tracking a vaccine. We said vaccines are fine. Um, but what happens, of course, with viruses is they're very unpredictable. They tend to mutate. And if they tend to mutate, then potentially the, the vaccine, quote unquote, doesn't work. And, and let's be clear, uh, what is being offered right now from Johnson Johnson and Pfizer are, are not actually vaccines. Those are that's a different strain. This is an MNRA uh, treatment, which is not technically a vaccine. We just kind of labeled it a vaccine. But nonetheless, this is, um, you know, kind of the interesting thing for the economy going forward, because now with the economy running really at full steam, if you take a look at a lot of the indicators, right, consumer confidence is back to where it was at the peak of the market in 2020. Um, if you take a look at uh, jobs plentiful versus jobs hard to get back to the peak where we were in 2020. In fact, we're back at levels of confidence and economic indicators, manufacturing. All these are at peaks that in some cases we've never even seen previously. These are record peaks because these are relative to where we were in 2020 when we were in the middle of the shutdown. So a lot of this data has gotten skewed to the upside, but is at levels that normally indicate peak economic activity. So as we've been talking about here over the last couple of, of months now, is that likely in the second quarter, we're gonna see a peak of economic activity. And if we take a look at say, for instance, um, you know, Treasury yields are very, very interesting here because when we take a look at Treasury yields in particular and looking at the 10-year Treasury, those actually peaked a couple of months ago. If we look at things like the uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities tips, which reflect inflation, if we take a look at break-even rates on inflation, those all have now peaked at a time where we're seeing this peak of economic activity, which is, uh, again, just suggesting that we may have seen the peak of economic activity. Treasury yields tend to be predictive of what we see in the future. And what Treasury yields are currently telling us is that we may have already seen the peak of all the ac economic activity and things get weaker from here going forward. And of course, one of the potential risks is a resurgence of the virus that 
starts the government back onto this trend of wanting to shut down activity and and taking control of that type of ec economic activity. So again, that's kind of the risk going forward. Does something occur? And this is always the case, right? We've talked about before here on the show. What is it that causes a revulsion in the markets at some point? It's always some unexpected exogenous event. It's not going to be the Delta, the, the Delta variant of the virus because we already know about that. It's always something that's unexpected. So what would be unexpected? Well, the, uh, what would be unexpected is for the government to do what it did in March of 2020 and shut down economic activity again, right? Nobody's expecting that to occur. That would certainly worry the markets here at this point. Also, what would worry the markets is, is a faster rate of taper or monetary tightening by the Federal Reserve. And that's something that potentially we're going to find out here in the next couple of months with inflationary uh, indicators really kind of peaking here. Um, one thing the Fed has been saying on a pretty consistent basis is that inflation is transient. Now, there's tons of articles out there that you if you just go Google inflation, you're going to find a million articles on inflation and you're going to get a wide variety of opinions. There's one school that says, no, this inflation is here to stay. Bank of America recently coming out with a statement saying we got inflation like this for another four years, very akin to what we saw back in the 1970s. The problem with that, of course, is that high rates of inflation, particularly at that stage and that level, that impacts corporate profit margins. So it's not really great for the stock market. If we go back to the 70s, you know, we had three rolling bear markets in the 1960s, 1970s, ending with a very sharp 1974 bear market decline. It was called a black bear market because at that point, everybody was just out of the market. Nobody wanted anything to do with stocks. But that was in the middle of that inflationary spike. So again, you know, if we're going to have that type of inflation, that's not great for stocks, right? At the same time, we've got another school that says it's all transient. That's really where the Fed says. The, the Fed says, hey, this inflation is transient and it's likely peaked here. And over the course of the next couple of quarters, we're going to start to see those inflationary pressures fade as all that stimulus starts to run through the system. Now, that's probably the camp that what break-even rates are currently saying. If you take a look at the five-year break-even rate and the 10-year break-even rate on, on yields, those have already peaked and started to decline, suggesting that inflation is going to start to fade here over the next few months. So again, there's two camps and really kind of how you place your bets at this point into the financial markets and particularly looking at where we are. That's really kind of one of the big stories here. And as we've been talking about here, yes, you know, markets are back onto their money flow buy signal here. It's going to be very short lived. We're already moving through that signal very quickly here. Markets didn't really go much of anywhere yesterday. We're going to be a little bit flat this morning at the open. But that's because the markets are really trying to digest this whole issue of where we are in the cycle. Are we at a stage in the cycle where we're going to go back to normal economic activity? It's going to be kind of hard to get things better than where they are here. CEO confidence is at a record level. Uh, again, as I said earlier, when you take a look at jobs plentiful versus jobs hard to get, that's at a record level. Consumer confidence is running back to record levels. Leading economic indicators are running back to record levels. I mean, everything's back at records. And the thing about records is always to remember that records are records for a reason. It's where we peaked previously in economic activity. So if you take a look at a lot of these economic indicators, they suggest we're nearing a peak of economic activity and things start to weaken from here. 
So again, I'm not saying that the markets are about to crash. It's just that because of this anomaly that we created in 2020, we had this recession back in 2020. And we said, okay, here's this recession. Let's stop it. Let's do $5 trillion worth of injections into the markets. Uh, that's 20% of the economy, right? 20% of the entire U.S. economy we injected in one year in terms of financial stability. Of course, you're going to get a massive surge in activity. The question, of course, is now what? And particularly when we're comparing things on a year-over-year basis, yes, on a relative basis, things look great. On an absolute basis, not so much. So these are going to be the questions that we have to ask now over the course of the next few months in particular. And as we get further into summer and then, of course, start to see second quarter earnings season, likely going to see a peak of earnings as well in this quarter. Because, again, when we go back to looking at all of these indicators, whether it's economic or financial, they're all at a peak. They're at the, they're at the peak of optimism. We've got record share issuance of money losing companies and markets. It's a sheer sign of market exuberance as well. Question is, is how do we navigate that from here? We'll talk about that right after the break. So don't go away. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Be right back. Listening to the Real Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than seventy-six hundred dollars a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. July. 8th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. I want to be the very best no one ever was. Catch them as my real test. Train them as my cause. I will travel. Welcome back to the show this morning. So just for the break, talking a little bit about kind of this peak, you know, activity that uh, we see going on right now. And again, this is this is good news. Um, of course, you know, it just means that the economy is really boom, booming here and doing well. And, you know, it's kind of interesting, though, um, if we step back for just a moment and look at a couple of things. I, I do want to talk about how to navigate this here in terms of portfolios as well, because it's, it's just kind of where we are within the cycle. But just one thing to think about here real quick. Um, if you remember back in 2020, and I know it seems like a decade ago now, <laughs> just last year, um, we were giving out loans to businesses, these payroll protection program loans, the PPP loans. Remember this? So everybody was running around. They, they, they were all running out, getting loans from the government, grants from the government, whatever, to keep employees on staff. And so what's interesting now is, is that we paid all these people to keep people employed, but we wound up laying them off anyway. So that was just a complete waste of money, government taxpayer dollars. And now companies are having a hard time finding employees. 
So reconcile that for me here real quick. Just kind of think about this for a moment. We paid companies to keep people employed so they wouldn't be laid off. So they're still working, supposedly, right? Because we kept them employed. We shut down the economy, and now the economy opens back up, and now companies can't find employees. So where did everybody go? Well, this is the whole problem with what we've got going on with stimulus payments and unemployment benefits, et cetera, is no one's sending them to work at the moment. Now, what analysts are hoping for, now remember on Thursday and Friday this week, we're going to see the ADP report and we're going to see the BLS employment report on Friday. Now, the last two months have been very weak relative to employment growth. Lots of excuses given for why that is. It's an anomaly, it's this, it's that, it's the other thing, whatever it is. Okay, but so... Analysts are very bullishly expecting, you know, to have a couple of, of, of months here where we see million job increases. But at the same time that we're expecting to see these million job increases, now follow me through here for just a second. Companies can't find people to work, right? Just can't find them. Nobody is wanting to have a job. Southwest Airlines is willing to pay double overtime for uh, pilots to work over the July 4th weekend, right? So can't find these workers, but yet every week we have over 400,000 people getting laid off for the first time. Now, hang on a second. The only way I can claim a jobless claim, okay, This this is key. I can't quit my job and go file for a jobless claim can't do that. I can only file for a jobless claim when I've been fired, terminated, laid off. So why are we laying off 400,000 people a week, but yet we can't find anybody to come work? So something's not jiving here. Something in the math. You know, two plus two doesn't equal five. Something's not right here. Don't know what it is. Can't put my finger on it just yet. I'm not making any accusations, but I'm just saying that there's something not quite right in what we're seeing in the employment numbers, the jobless claim numbers, or something between the story that we're told that we've got record number of job openings, which, by the way, there's something hinky with that whole jobless job opening date anyway. We've had record job openings since 2017, which was the when we hit a new record from 2008. We've had record job openings for years, right? So that data is really not very functional. Doesn't really tell you tell you much of a story. Um, but we've got supposedly record job openings. Can't find anybody to hire, but we're for, firing 400,000 people a week. That's 1.6 million people a month losing their job. But we can't hire anybody because nobody wants to work. Figure it out. Okay, sorry. Sideline. <laughs> Sidebar. Meanwhile, back on the show. Yeah. <laughs> back on the other side of my brain. Let's talk about how to deal with this uh, kind of bifurcation of economic data and markets. And, and again, as we were talking about this this whole issue, and, and again, the kind of the employment thing pays, plays into this, because, right, we're expecting this massive economic boom to be sustainable. And see, that's really the trick here, which is that all this idea of the stock market, record highs, 
and earnings expectations. We're expecting to grow to $200 a share in earnings by the end of 2022. I mean, just fantastical numbers. But it's all hinging upon this rate of economic growth that has got to be sustained, yet most of the economic growth we've seen has come from, from government spending. Stimulus. So the risk here is really twofold for investors. One, there's no reason to be uber bearish right now, right? Um, markets are going up. We're on a buy signal. We added some exposure to portfolios a couple of weeks ago. You know, that's just that's just the management part, right? The emails that I get are really twofold. And we've talked about these before. I get one camp of emails, which is, oh, my gosh, you know, I got to get out now because this market's about to crash. The other is, is that, you know, this market's never going to crash because the Fed's supporting it. That's not really either camp is wrong. And, and it's always the case. There's always this story that's in the middle. Um Markets are going to be supported by federal interventions until they aren't. And what I mean by that is there's really two ways to focus on this. Look, the Bank of Japan has been buying 80% of the ETF market for years now. And their index has still not hit a new high. And, you know, yes, the Nikkei's done well, but it goes through kind of booms and busts on a regular basis. Their economy is mired in rolling recessions every three years. Um, you know, there's there is anecdotal evidence. Japan did a QE three times the size on a relative basis of what was done in the U.S., and their results have not been that great. And there's a lot more, you know, there's a lot more comparative analogies between the U.S. and Japan than you think. Demographics, unfunded uh, pension fund liabilities, you know, just right on down the road. Right. Yeah, there's some differences, but there's a lot of similarities economically between demographics, debt, pension fund obligations, et cetera, that we have in common. And as we've talked about on the show before, demographics are destiny in terms of an economy. And we're currently running the, the lowest birth rate that we've had since the 1940s. But, you know, people having babies today in the U.S. are almost heading towards non-existent at this point. Um, that's problematic long term. But that doesn't affect the markets today. So right now, these are things to keep an eye on down the road. These are things that are certainly of concern, but doesn't mean that we should be overly defensive in portfolios today, because right now, there is still this momentum behind the markets. There is still this this exuberance in the markets, as we talked about in yesterday's Technically Speaking post. And I was showing you the graph yesterday. We have all the indications currently of irrational exuberance in the markets, right? We've got record, you know, we've got surging levels of secondary offerings by money losing companies. That's what you see at peaks of markets. What does that mean? This is so funny story, right? It's a funny story anecdote. So over the weekend, AMC announced that they had a record box office weekend because Vin Diesel's new movie F9 came out. Right, they racked up seventy million dollars in a weekend. That was a record for AMC. Sounds great till you read the fine print. That was a record since the economy was shut down. You don't have to go too far back to look at box office weekends that were racking up one hundred and fifty million, two hundred million. 
$250 million over a weekend. $70 million isn't that much. Yeah, it's a record since we... <laughs> it's a record from zero when you weren't showing any movies. But it is not near a record of what is a normal box office weekend for a blockbuster-type summer movie. And this is the company that everybody's chasing right now. This is an interesting story, right? So all these Reddit traders are trace are are, are chasing, <coughs> excuse me, chasing AMC. Why? Because they think that they're going to trans, you know, AMC is going to transform itself into a digital delivery system like Netflix. Okay, that's fine, but what are you going to do with all your theaters? <laughs> And you don't produce any any content. You get your content from everybody else who needs the content that they're creating. MGM is an example, Paramount, etc. That are making the content. They need it for their streaming system. So they're not going to give it to you to stream on your system when they need to stream it on their system first. So if we get rid of theaters, everybody's going to be content creators. That, that's, that's what it comes down to. Everybody will create their own content, deliver their own stream. AMC doesn't have that capability. So the whole that whole strategy is nil. But here's a company that just went out and sold <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars worth of shares on a secondary offering in the markets. And, and rightly so, they should. A bunch of idiots ran the stock price up to an astronomical level, market cap valuation-wise. AMC would be stupid not to sell more shares to those individuals and bring that cash in-house, which is exactly what they did. Then that secured AMC financially for a while to remain in business. Company's still going bankrupt at some point down the road. But what AMC and what Reddit traders allowed them to do was to stay alive longer. This is what we call a zombie company, right? These companies that should be going out of business are getting lifelines through secondary offerings because investors are willing to give them money without understanding exactly what they're buying. But that's the level that we've gotten to in the market and is a mark of irrational exuberance. We'll be right back after the break. Listening to the Real Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than seventy-six hundred dollars a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. July. 8th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. So just talk a little bit about navigating this market um, and portfolios. And, you know, it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge because on one side, we talk about valuations as an example. And, you know, 
we talked yesterday, in particular, if you read our technically speaking report on the website right now, uh, realinvestmentadvice.com, we talked yesterday about kind of these off the record indicators about markets, which are suggesting higher levels of risk. But these things don't necessarily equate to an immediate reversion in the markets. And, and this is the problem that investors have. We have investors in general have what is called short termism, <laughs> which is a mental psychosis, by the way, <laughs> which says that all they can see is what is in front of them in the next 15 to 30 minutes within the markets. And it's interesting because investors run around all the time. I talk to individuals like, oh, I'm a long-term investor. But yet the average holding period for a stock is less than, than six months right now and getting shorter. So the idea of being a long-term investor is really no, is, you know, is six months. It used to be six years for a hold. But we're so attached and so attuned to the markets now because of all the media, right? You got CNBC, you've got Fox Business, you've got every website in the world. Now you've got apps in your hand that show you, you know, every tick by every second, by every moment of what's happening in your portfolio. It's terrible for investors, right? This is actually bad because it triggers all those bad psychoses, all those bad behaviors that we have as investors, right? We worry about, you know, not not getting enough performance, we're chasing markets and, you know, we got to, we got to do better. Got to, you know, how did I miss out on buying, you know, AMC and GameStop, right? I got to get into those. So we make all these really bad short-term decisions. Now, bull markets forgive us for that in the short term. As we discussed yesterday, we, you know, we can get away with it for a while because bull markets are very forgiving. You can make bad investment decisions and, and make money. But eventually that turns. But the question is, is knowing when. And, and, that's, and that's the problem in the navigation of markets. Unfortunately, as an investor, you've got to play the game while the game is in, is, is, you know, in action. We can't sit on the sidelines and watch the market go up and go, okay, well, I'm going to get in when it corrects. Well, because when it corrects, then a whole nother set of bad psychologies come in and we don't get in because we're worried about it going lower and we don't want to buy in on the way down, right? So, you know, this is just that process that we have to work through psychologically and manage our portfolio. So the point is, is that you have to participate. How do you do it safely is by using some very controlled manners, right? Have your stop loss levels put in on every position. I'm going to buy it at this price. And if it goes up or down, I'm going to sell it at some level. The problem is, is that individuals buy positions with really no idea of I'm buying it here because I think it's going to go up. But that's the whole thought process. There's not a thought process that says, hey, if I buy this stock, where do I, what happens if, right? So if I buy this stock at 10 and it goes to eight, I'm out. If I buy this stock at 10 and it goes to 15, I'm going to take some profits. 
those thought processes <clears throat> those thought processes don't generally filter into most people's investment decisions. They buy it, they hope it's going to go up, and if it goes up, they're happy. But then they just go, well, I hope it keeps going up. Well, stocks just don't always go up. They do go down. And riding a stock up and down doesn't necessarily make you money over time. Plenty of cases where that hasn't worked out well. There's also the other side of, I buy the stock and it goes down, and now I'm just hoping it comes back. And if it gets back to even, I'll sell it. And then when it does get back to even, you don't sell it because now you're hoping it's going to go up and it goes back down again and you're trapped. So these are all those investment decisions that we make repeatedly over time where things just don't work out well. Um, and this is really kind of, you know, the, you have to navigate the market in the same way. Let, you know, let me see if I can do something here for you real quick to do this. Uh, Brent, can you bring up my screen for me? Let's just take a look at a chart of the, I'm just going to use the uh, S&P 500 index as an example, okay? And, you know, what people need to understand is, is that markets trend in a direction over time, either up or down. And it's just important to understand what that trend is. You know, a lot of people are worried right now about, hey, you know, this market could crash. Yeah, it could, right? We could have another March-type event, that occurs. And we could see that March type event. The market was trending. We were very overbought at the time. There were plenty of indicators from, you know, RSI was very elevated at that point. The MACD, the, the MACD, the moving average convergence divergence indicators were very overbought at that time. Um, stochastics were, were overbought and, and getting onto a sell, sell signal on, on a weekly basis. So there were lots of indications right here in late February of 2020 that we were going to have a correction. Now, what nobody knew at that point was that we were going to shut down the economy, which created a, a correction that was largely exacerbated by a unexpected exogenous shock. That's the thing we're always talking about, right? But that wasn't, that was just one, right? That was just one issue. I mean, you saw this exact same thing back in, in September, October of 2018 before you had a near 20% correction. Well, here we are today. Many of the same indicators are in place currently on a weekly basis that suggests we could have a bit bigger correction, you know, 5 to 10%, um, you know, a correction to 3,800 on the S&P index would be a retracement back to previous strong support moving averages, right? That's That would be a fairly deep correction at this point. But that would require a rather disappointing set of news or some exogenous event that we're not currently aware of. If, if we shrink our time frames and look at a daily basis, you can see that the S&P has been in a very defined trend upwards ever since November of last year. So if I'm long the S&P as an example, so I own the S&P, and this can be a stock too. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's an individual stock or if it's an index, they all work the same way. There's a very defined bottom that we put in a couple of weeks ago 
when we had that initial sell signal that we had talked about. We sold off. We came down. We tested the rising trend line. We, tre we tested the 50-day the moving average, held that support, rallied back up to the top of, of the current trend channel. So as long as we don't violate those bottoms or violate that trend, everything is fine. We can just keep we're kind of riding the markets right now. We're going to get a little bit of volatility here, probably get another correction back down to that trend line. But as long as we don't violate that trend on a sustained basis, the bullish trend is intact on a short-term basis. So we don't need to be overly defensive at this point. And this is kind of really my point about navigating this market. All these headlines are certainly worth paying attention to. The economic data is peaking, right? The earnings data will peak here over the next couple of months. These are things that, you know, are, are out there, but they don't necessarily evolve into a market correcting event today, this moment, right now, tomorrow morning. And and what happens with most people is that if, if you say, hey, we're going to get a correction and it doesn't happen tomorrow, everybody just assumes that the analysis is wrong, so they dismiss it, and then the correction comes. So when we when we look at these bigger, broader, macro kind of pictures that suggest that we're going to get a mean reverting event at some point, doesn't mean it's going to happen today or tomorrow, and if it doesn't happen today or tomorrow, doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means we're not set there yet. We'll get there, but we're going to need an event to occur. In the meantime, while we're waiting on that event to occur, all we have to do is pay attention to where our, our stop levels are, right? So previous bottoms, previous trend lines, those are easy, identifiable ways to pick a short-term point that says, look, if I violate this trend, and right now on the S&P, that's 4,200. If I violate 4,200 on the S&P, I'm going to reduce my risk. How did I get 4,200? 4,200 is the bottom of this rising trend line that we've had really ever since October of last year. So, the, these are the things to think about in your own portfolio. So as you're thinking about your own portfolio and how to invest, but always remember that we have to play the game as long as the game is in action. And the game is in action. There's a lot of momentum, a lot of exuberance, a lot of risk. I mean, there's certainly risk out there. Don't get me wrong. There's certainly a lot of risk. I'm not saying ignore the risk. That's the whole point of this. But have a place where you say, I'm out. To some degree, doesn't mean to be all out either. Doesn't mean to go to 100% cash. But, you know, raising 10 or 20% cash in your portfolio certainly will help you buffer a downside draw if it occurs. And here's the beautiful thing about risk management is, is that even if you raise 10 or 20% cash and the market turns right around and starts to go back up, so what? You just put your cash back to work. But in the event... You go to 10 or 20 or 30% cash and the market does start to enter into a bigger correction like March of 2020, you've got a buffer. You've got a, an ability to weather that downturn and to navigate the risk. And you have cash to buy at the next bottom. Be right back after the break. We'll answer your questions. Don't go away. Get 
Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at Real investmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care july 8th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to the real investment show and welcome back to the show this morning so uh a couple of weeks ago, we added to our semiconductor positions because they had gotten really oversold out of favor and and uh, they were kind of a good opportunity. Those have kind of worked out well here lately. Um, you know, these are the things that we were talking about a second ago is you can look for opportunities even in a market that is overvalued, extended, stretched, etc. There are always opportunities to invest. You just have to kind of look around for it. This is kind of the problem with some, you know, kind of ETF passive investing is, you you miss some opportunities in markets that can weather either even a, a downturn um, because you're just kind of chasing broad indexes. Um, let's get to some of the questions in our on our YouTube channel. So if you're watching our YouTube stream on our website, uh, simply go to realinvestmentadvice.com, click on the YouTube channel. You can subscribe there as well. Love to have you. Uh, every morning we've got a good group of people that hang out and ask good questions. And so we've started kind of taking some time out because they bring up, you know, you guys bring up some great points and um, and kind of thought and in, in, invoking. Some of them are just stupid, but other, I'm just joking. I'm just, I'm just teasing. Uh, there's, there's, there's some good ideas here. Uh, one um, is talking about lower yields and stronger U.S. dollars. That suggests move to safety. Yes, that's exactly what that means. Um, one of the things that we said early on uh, this year is that the weakness in the dollar was going to evaporate couple of reasons for that one was the dollar was extremely oversold very negative short you know very negative sentiment about the u.s dollar everybody in the media was like oh the dollar is gonna die right we're gonna we're gonna all be trading green stamps in the next few months uh go buy bitcoin uh you know that was the attitude earlier this year and that's really kind of that sentiment negativity that you're looking for for a decent opportunity for a reflexive rally at least if not a change in trend in a commodity asset or investment. And that's exactly what's happened with the dollar. But yes, the, when you see two things in the economy, it typically leads to a stronger dollar. One is remember that at the end of the day, every country in the world is fiat. There's no currency in the world backed by gold anywhere in the world, right? Everything is fiat. So everything is based on who's got the best, highest quality, full faith and credit, right? And that's the U.S. right now, at least at the moment, till we screw that up some more by, by eroding our rule of law and um, <laughs> our underlying confidence in our government. Other than that, though, the U.S. dollar remains the currency of choice because it's deep, it's liquid, and it's stable. Stable is a key word. This is why Bitcoin can't be a currency right now because it's too volatile. You can't be trading goods and services and having Bitcoin move 4%, 5%, 10% of the day, or much less crash by 50% in a month. 
can't have that. You need a good, stable environment to trade goods and services because if I'm producing a car and I'm selling it to you, I want to make sure I get the value for the car. If I sell it to you in Bitcoin, I lose half my money before you get delivery of the car. Um, you win, I lose. That's not acceptable. So one thing that's going to happen always is when there is a differential in yields and when there is a differential in economic growth and we have booming economic growth, money flows are going to flow into the country that has the strongest economic growth and the higher yield. So, yes, um, when you are seeing a reversion, and of course now when, when dollars come into a country, remember that dollars never leave the boundaries of a country. The U.S. dollar does not go to Europe. It stays at the border of the United States. When I transact a good or service within another country, say China, I'm going to buy $50 billion worth of goods from China this quarter. Well, I pay for those in dollars, but China has a choice. China can either take those dollars into their currency, which would strengthen their currency, right? Because they've got to convert the U.S. dollar purchases into their currency. That strengthens their currency relative to the U.S. dollar. So that makes their goods more expensive for U.S. consumers to buy. So we don't buy as much. So it is in their interest to try to keep the yuan basically relatively pegged to the dollar in, in, in a lot of terms and manner. So I do that by taking those purchases and sanitizing those purchases by buying U.S. treasuries. That way the dollar stays in the dollar, even though they're now my treasuries. I don't have to convert them back to my yuan. So when you have economic strength that is very strong... You have more activity. Dollars are going to flow into the country of the strongest economic growth. That's going to cause that dollar to strengthen. But because they don't want to take that currency back there, they start buying treasury, which is why yields are now falling. And yes, it is also a flight to safety because a lot of the market participants are saying, look, what yields are telling you is that economic growth is not that strong. It is not sustainable. It is not organic and it will not last. And remember, as a lender, this is the key point about bonds. When I buy a stock, I am solely betting on the price of that stock to go up. When I buy a bond, right, I am loaning. When I buy a bond, I'm loaning somebody some money. I'm loaning you money. And when I loan you money, I say, OK, well, the current interest rate is 2%. And I'm going to loan you money for 10 years at 2% interest. Inflation is 5. I've just now guaranteed myself a loss over the next 10 years of 3% on my money. Because you're only going to pay me my principal back and my interest. So when somebody issues debt, right, and, and when somebody's buying that debt, particularly in the bond market, when people are buying that debt and they're saying, okay, I'm going to buy your bond, that debt has to be priced for expectations of future growth, inflation, and the cost of doing business, right? I've got to make money at that. So if I'm a bank loaning money, I've got to loan it at a rate where I can make money over time. So what the bond market has to factor in is credit risk, liquidity risk, yield risk, um, you know, uh, economic growth risk, all this, all the inflation risk, all has to be factored into that bond issuance, that debt issuance. Because that's all they're going to get. They're only going to get the interest payment and the principal back. That's it. So if they don't factor it in right, they lose money. And lenders don't like losing money. 
So this is why interest rates are always a predictive indicator of future economic growth. And what yields are telling you right now is that economic growth is going to slow very sharply over the next few quarters. Okay, great question, though. Um, all indexes are correlated. The uh, NASDAQ and the S&P are at record levels. Dow and Russell are at 50-day moving averages. Time for a pairs trade. Sure, uh, we actually went long diamonds uh, Monday. for a catch, And basically, the idea is a catch-up trade. Um, the Dow will probably try to play catch-up uh, to all-time highs with the S&P and the NASDAQ. Just kind of tends to work that way historically. So NASDAQ, uh, NASDAQ and S&P are very overbought short term. So looking just for a catch up trade uh, on the Dow at this point. Now, maybe wrong. We've got a, a, a very close stop sitting there. We will stop out, um, but we'll see if we can get a little bit of a catch up rotation of the Dow. R small cap, mid cap are a little bit more tricky here. And again, I wouldn't short them at this point. Um, because shorting anything in this market is very risky at this juncture, especially not knowing what the Fed's going to do. But there is some, some more risk in small cap, mid cap right now because of what's happening economically and under, under the surface, right? These companies are most impacted by slower rates of economic growth because they don't have the cash flows to, to sustain themselves like an Apple or a Microsoft, right? So as we've been talking about, as you start to get slower rates of economic growth, you're going to start to see more money rotate back into the growth stocks rather than the reflation stocks. And that's really what's been happening lately. If you watch what's going on, it's been Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix, Google leading the charge. And a lot of these reflationary trades have really been struggling as of late um, because of this idea of kind of peak economic growth is starting to settle into markets. Hadn't hit the headlines of the media yet, but you're seeing it internally in the rotation in the market. And this is something we had talked about a couple of months ago, starting to see this rotation back into growth shares would kind of be the, the telltale sign that the reflation trade was ending. Uh, great question, though. Um, Good, good comment here also um, from John talking about reports of gas stations running out of gas is not a supply issue or it's a supply issue rather than a demand issue because can't find truckers to, to truck uh, fuel. And that's really a problem. Um, I've told you a story before. My wife sells liquefied natural gas and their biggest problem right now is not just getting tank loads of LNG because they are sold out. I mean, just you can't, they cannot produce LNG fast enough to fill demand. But the other side of it is that they also can't find drivers. That's been a big challenge for them. So to, to actually drive the truckload. So um, absolutely right. And that's why prices are certainly elevated. That'll ease as things kind of get back to normal again we had this big shutdown you had a lot of demand that demand is getting filled and as that demand is filled then supply will start to increase as demand starts to slow down a bit so we'll start to get a reversion in that this isn't the the current levels of demand are not sustainable uh, those will reverse back in some time here um should we compare 2019 to 2020 seems like we're comparing to an anomaly you know the the problem is that you've got to go to some baseline of normality uh, to talk about where markets are going to run to. So again, as you start looking at 2020, you've got to look at the year-over-year -year base effects, and particularly when it comes to economic data, look at the year-over-year -year base effects of what's happening in the economy right now versus where we were in kind of a normal economic trend. Because if we are getting back to normal, we're going to retrace back to those normal rates of growth uh, somewhere around 2 to 2.25%, two maybe less. Some of the Fed's long-term rate's 1.8. So you've got to get back. You've got to compare back to some level of normality uh, because the anomaly, which you're correct, 
is going to start to work itself out of the data over the next couple of quarters. And, and, and next quarter and quarter three, we had a huge surge in economic growth. So the year-over-year comparison between Q3 of 2021 and Q3 of 2020 is not going to be that big. So again, a lot of these growth expectations are going to start to reverse because of the year-over-year year, year base effects winding out of the system. Great show today. Appreciate it. Uh, all questions as always. Be back tomorrow, of course, uh, for our Thursday edition. Get ready to head into the July 4th weekend. So we'll see you all tomorrow. Stick around, though. Three Minutes of Markets and Money will be coming up with the website here very shortly. Have a great day. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.